You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2. This week, as I was studying for my sermon, I googled the question, what is the greatest need of mankind? What is the greatest need of mankind? Now you probably wonder where our brilliant ideas come from every single Sunday. It's Google. Bing works too, but not as well. You can probably imagine, after Googling a question like that, what's the greatest need of mankind, the kind of answers that, I, that, that Google had to offer. Some people said it was to stop the violence and disunity of the world and have the whole world get along. <laughs> that sounds so good. One person said interstellar colonization. Greatest need of mankind. To develop extraterrestrial colonies. A lot of people said things like, I believe it is to free ourselves from the shackles of belief. And I thought, is that really what you believe? (laughs) Some people said self-actualization, right? That we can realize our fullest potential and all of our desires. Others said it's to be understood and appreciated by other people. Christians tend to have better answers. They said things like happiness. No, true joy. But true joy is the greatest need of mankind. Or some said peace. Others said hope. And as I googled these questions and I read the answers, it reminded me that there are many, many terrible answers to this question out there. There are many bad things to say. And there are some good answers to the question. But I don't think the good answers hit on the greatest need of mankind. I believe in the story that we're going to read this morning, Jesus helps guide us into a good answer to this question. So I want you to pay attention on purpose. I want you to try and figure it out. What is Jesus saying that your greatest need is this morning? Before we jump into the story, we should step back and look at Mark's gospel and how this story fits into the whole. He begins his gospel with John the Baptist. John is doing what he was destined to do to prepare the way of the Lord. And so he's announcing to the world that the Messiah has come. The Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world is finally here. Jesus shows up. John baptizes him. And then Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He fasts. And at the end of this time, he's tempted by Satan. And he proves that he is truly, completely sinless. Mark goes on and declares the mission of Christ. In in fact, Jesus declares his own mission, and it's to preach the gospel and that people would believe the gospel and repent. That's that's what Jesus' message is. And so as much as we see what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 1, that he's going around and he's healing people and he's casting out demons, Jesus wants it to be clear that his primary goal is that people will repent and believe the gospel, believe the good news. So Jesus is going around in the regions of Galilee. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus' authority is emphasized. He has authority over all things. As he teaches, people are amazed at the authority that he teaches with. It's not like anybody else has ever heard. He's got, when he speaks, it's, it's like the God of heaven is speaking. As he 
heals people. He shows his authority over all sickness. As he casts out demons, he shows his authority over the spiritual realm. He tells demons literally to shut up. And they do. They have to. Because he is God. In the first chapter, the crowds keep growing. His fame is spreading abroad. And after chapter 1, there is no hostility. There is no opposition. There's nobody against Jesus. All we see is Jesus becoming more and more popular. And so as we get into Mark chapter 2, we begin to see this first hint of hostility toward Christ. We'll begin our reading in verse number 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them, and they come to him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. So last time Jesus is in Capernaum, he has touched and then healed this leprous man. He commanded the man after he was healed to go tell no one. You remember what the leprous man did? Told everyone and their mother, right? I mean, he just went around proclaiming that he had been healed by Jesus, and maybe he thought he was doing Jesus a favor, but the problem is Jesus told him not to. He said, don't say anything. And so as a result of this man going about telling the world, now Jesus can't be in Capernaum anymore. The crowds are too large. He has to leave. He goes into the wilderness and he starts preaching there because there's no way he can be there anymore. And so it seems like Jesus has gone around. He's done some preaching out maybe in the other towns and villages in the wilderness. And now he's back in Capernaum. He probably comes in quietly hoping to get back into uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house and maybe get another good meal and a good night's rest. As soon as he's there, it's noised abroad that he's there. Everybody knows it. And so the crowds begin to gather. And, and have you ever seen when a crowd begins to gather, what happens? Everybody wants to know what's going on. And so more and more people begin to gather. And more people begin to gather. And it gets so bad that people are so squished into the house that there are people standing in the doorway just pressing to get in, people outside the doorway trying to get a glimpse of what's going on and to hear what Jesus is saying, and the whole house begins to be surrounded by this crowd. And North Americans, we're very used to having some kind of like personal space, right? But when you go to other countries, you realize very quickly that 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 personal space doesn't exist, and and a lot of times it can exist. The, The transportation that they are used to, involves people sitting on one another's laps and just like crowded into, like, how many people can we fit into this vehicle? It's it's a game every single time. And so, I imagine that we're not talking about like, yeah, everybody's got their little, you know, two foot, two, two, two times two, four square foot space that they can like stand in. I'm imagining people are pushed up against each other. Your breath is on someone else and you feel the breaths of everyone else around you. It is, it is just packed into this little home. And the, then we find in the beginning of verse 3 that there's this one particular paralytic that Mark wants us to learn about. And this paralyzed man is being brought by four other men. Capernaum was a fairly big city. 
I mean, as far as the towns in Galilee go, it's one of the bigger ones. It's a seaport. It had a Roman garrison there. There was tax collectors there. And so it was fairly large. Before we just continue to read on what happens, can you imagine what it took to get this man to this home? Walking through, carrying kilometers maybe, through the city, getting this man to go see Jesus. It wouldn't have been an easy task. They'd have to make something for him to lay on. And they, like, it would be hard. And so they finally arrive where Jesus is. And they arrive with this huge problem. Verse 4 says, When they come, when they could not, and, they, and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press. When, when they arrived, there were so many people. The crowds were so large and so compacted together that they could not find a way to get near him. And I imagine they tried. I imagine that, that many times they say, excuse me, can you just move for a second? And just, everybody's just there, and they're worried about hearing. They, they want to see. They're not concerned about making a way for this paralyzed man, and so there's no way. And at this point, 99% of people turn around and head back home. They can pat themselves on the back and say, hey, we did our best, guys. We tried. Maybe we'll, we'll come tomorrow. We'll, we'll do this another time. This is it, right? We did our best. But that's not what these guys Say, look at what they do instead. They uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed where in the sick of the palsy lay. And many of us have read this story many times, right? But can you imagine this scene taking place? The houses in Galilee often had flat roofs. And the roofs were constructed in a fairly intricate way. They would first lay larger beams across the width of the whole thing. And then on top of those, they would pile kind of medium-sized sticks. And then they would get to like smaller sticks and branches. And eventually they'd have this really nice bed of, of brush that begins, you know, biggest to smallest. And on top of that, on top of all the leaves, they would pile dirt. And they would have up to a foot of earth, a foot of dirt, where above, you could actually have a garden on top of your roof. In, in the rainy season, there was a great deal of vegetation that would grow. And so these guys find the back of the house, probably a stairway or something leading up to this house. They, they find a way to get this paralyzed man. That, this is not an easy task. It's not easy to carry dead weight up a flight of stairs and on top of a house. But this is their idea. Can you imagine the first person saying it? Hey, guys, I got an idea. Oh, yeah, and it's probably the guy that always has crazy, stupid ideas, right? <laughs> Let's put him on the roof. <laughs> like, what? There's, I mean, there's no hole in the roof. I know, I know. We'll dig. Let's get a shovel. We'll dig a hole in the roof. And so when it says they broke up the roof, the liter it literally means they dug up the roof. They got shovels on top of the roof, digging it up. Can you imagine being inside? And, and now you're hearing, like, what's going on up there? Can you imagine right now we just heard, like, this banging and knocking on the roof, and all of a sudden we see, like, particles of the roof begin to fall on Jesus' head as he's preaching, and then more particles and more, and more stuff begins to fall, and all of a sudden there's this, like, sunlight, ray of, of sunshine coming into the, the house, and then somebody goes, pokes his head down, hey, 
we're in the perfect spot. Jesus is right below us. <laughs> and so they open up the, the hole big enough that they can let this guy down. And so they bring this man. It's nuts. It's insane. But, I mean, it's creative. And it's the only way. It's the only way that they could get this man to Jesus. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, Sons, thy sins be forgiven. This statement is surprising. And I think it's surprising for two reasons. One is practical, the other is theological. The first reason is when we read it, the first thing we expect Jesus to do is to heal this man's body, right? I mean, that's just what makes sense. He's a paralyzed guy that he's come here presumably for healing. And so Jesus, you should say, son, arise up, take your bed and walk. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, your sins are forgiven. So that's surprising. The other thing that we, we ought to deal with that's kind of surprising is Jesus forgives this man's sin, and yet we don't see this man repenting. We don't see him asking Jesus to save him. And, and this seems to be contradictory to what we find in the rest of Scripture. Right? And it doesn't just seem to be. I mean, Jesus, if Jesus were to forgive this man's sin without any hint of repentance or any saving faith, it would be contradictory to the rest of Scripture. The whole Bible, we don't find God forgiving people that don't repent. At no point is God a forgiving God to unrepentant people. That's just a fact. You can't get around that as you read Scripture. And so, if, if Jesus is forgiving this person and he hasn't repented, it's, it's strange. I think there's a, re, a way we can understand this that I, I, hope, I think it's helped me. I hope it helps you. For the Jewish mind, for a Jewish person, they connected their sin with their physical infirmities, right? Their difficult circumstances in life. And so when they were being blessed, the assumption was they were being blessed because they were being good. And when things were going poorly for them, things were going poorly because they were they had sin. They were being bad. God wasn't blessing them. And this, this wasn't a completely unmerited idea. God did say he would bless obedience, that he would curse disobedience. So there is something to what they thought, right? And, but there are times in the New Testament where the disciples ask about somebody's infirmity, ask about somebody's disease, okay? So you got the man that's blind, and they would say, hey, Jesus, is this man blind because of his sin, or is he blind because of his parents' sin? And remember what Jesus said in that case? It, it, it's for the glory of God. It's neither. It wasn't this man's sin. It wasn't his, he's, he's been born blind and lived over 40 years as a blind person so that today God could be glorified among all these people, right? So Jesus corrected their wrong thinking in that case. In this case, he doesn't do it. He doesn't correct any thinking like that. In fact, he lets them assume that that's the case, and the way that Jesus connects these two things, it almost seems like it really is the case. Now, I would posit to you, I think it is the case. I think that this man's paralysis is connected to his sin. I think that, that and listen, I am not saying that any person who suffers, suffers because they're sinning. 
The truth is, all suffering, all disease is ultimately the cause of of sin. We live in a sin-cursed world, and so all disease is ultimately the product of living in a sin-cursed world. But I'm not saying that if you're suffering today, it's just because, obviously, you have sinned or your parents. But what I am saying is, there are cases that happens. And Paul made this point in 1 Corinthians 11 when he said, you're doing the Lord's Supper wrong, and some of you are sick because of it, and some of you are dead because of it. God has judged you in certain ways to get your attention, to bring, he's judging you physically, because apparently physically is all you're going to listen to at the moment, to get your attention onto the spiritual problem in your life. And so I think for this man, these things were connected, and I think he knew it. I think this man understood, I mean, he would have assumed that to be the case. I think it was true. I'm not sure if he was born paralyzed. I don't know how long he'd been paralyzed. But I think his paralysis, I'm guessing he wasn't born. I think his paralysis was connected to his sin, and he knew it. And so when he came to Jesus for healing, he wasn't only coming to be physically healed. I think when he exercised such incredible faith, and when these men did as well, they had an inkling of who Jesus was. And, and this man understood that, that Jesus could not only take care of the symptom of his problem, the paralysis, he could take care of the problem, the sin. And when you read the story with that mindset, everything makes so much sense. And when you don't read the story with that mindset, I'm telling you, it's a struggle. I, I don't know how else to read it. And so, I believe that this man's sin and this man's sickness were directly connected. And that when this man came with faith for healing, he also came with faith for forgiving. He came with this understanding that he was a broken person. He was sorry for the sin he had done that caused the state he was in. And he was coming to Jesus for complete healing. So when Jesus says, your sins be forgiven, Jesus is getting at the root of the problem right away. I don't think this man was as shocked to hear those words as we might be. I think he connected them. Your sins are forgiven. Praise the Lord. That's good news. As soon as he says that, there are some people in the room that get upset. Verse number six. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, and, and Luke tells us that they were scribes and Pharisees, and they were reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? How can this man stand here and forgive this other man's sin? Only God can forgive sin. Now, they are absolutely right. Only God can forgive sin. And David made it clear when he had sinned that his sin was ultimately against God, right? Against thee and thee only have I sinned. So Luke, Lucas and Miles, can you come up for a second? Okay, I just want to show you something, because this is how this works. This is what the scribes are pointing out, okay? Now, in this scenario, um, Miles is going to represent the sinner. Lucas is going to represent God. And I'm just going to be a a, a friendly bystander, okay? Now, Miles, I want you to to hit Lucas. Not, okay, Miles. I forgive you. 
you go ahead and do it again. Don't worry, Miles, I forgive you. Do it again. No worries, man. I forgive you. Okay? Now, if I'm a friendly bystander and Lucas keeps getting hit and he keeps seeing me go up to Miles and be like, man, I forgive you, then Lucas has reason to be like, what are you doing? You don't get to forgive that sin. Because he didn't hit you. Because the sin isn't against you. The sin is against God. Right? And so if Jesus is a, is a human being who comes and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And that sin is not against him, then he has absolutely no right to say it. So go ahead, you guys sit down. Great job. You guys are really good at getting hit and hitting. They actually really are good at that. <laughs> and so they're making a point. And, and in this story, Jesus is also making a point. Jesus' point is, I can forgive sin because I am God. And if he's not God, then this is blasphemous. And the punishment for blasphemy for the Jew was death. He deserved to die if, this wasn't, if he wasn't God. And ultimately, this was the charge that they would use to have him killed a few years later. So Jesus here is coming out. He is God with the ability to forgive sin. Verse number eight. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. Hey, what's easier? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Is it easier to say, take up your bed and walk? Think about that question. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and he went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. We've never seen anything like this before. Jesus reads the minds of these people as they're thinking, this is blasphemy, because only God can forgive sin. He asks them this brilliant question. You tell me what's easier. Tell him that his sins are forgiven or to tell him to take up his bed and walk. And as we think of this question, I, I've, I've heard it preached a number of different ways. Okay? Is this question an obvious answer? Is it rhetorical to say, well, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven because you can say that and there's, there's no evidence of it. But if you say, arise, take up your bed, there's kind of immediate corroboration whether you're telling the truth or not. Right? And so some would say it's just really easier to say this one thing. But is it easier to actually say and do forgive your sin, or take up your bed and walk? That's a harder question. Which one's easier to do? Jesus is God. He has the ability to heal the paralytic at any time that he wants to. I read an author that talked about God's only problem. And, and, and then he, he spent the first part of the 
article backtracking, saying that God never has problems because he's sovereign and, and, and all those things. And that's, that's all true. He's an omnipotent God. But what he was, the point he was trying to make is that the only thing that God had to solve was the problem of his righteous judgment being poured out, which it has to be poured out on sin, and his desire to forgive and to cleanse sinners. It's, it's the problem. It's not a problem for God, but it's a problem that God had to solve. And the solution required the death of the innocent, perfect Lamb of God. The solution required Jesus to go to the cross and die. And so we might ask the question, what's easier to say? One's easier to say, but what's easier to do? It's a lot easier to tell somebody to get up and walk than it is to forgive their sin. Only God can do that, and God can only do that if a substitute dies in that person's place. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 7. God is revealing himself to Moses as he gives the second table of the law. Verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. How can both of those things be true? How can he show mercy and forgive iniquity and transgression and sin and never clear the guilty? He has to find a way of making the guilty innocent. He has to find a way of taking away their sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He died to pay your punishment. He died to take away your sin. He was your substitute. So, so the wrath that you had accumulated was given to Jesus, and you received his perfect righteousness. Now you're not guilty. And now you can be cleared. And so Jesus, when he was asking this question, he had a lot behind it. He asked him this great question, but he's asking the question to show them that he can do both. And that if, if he can really tell this man to take up his bed and walk, there must be something behind that. The, it must be proving that he can really forgive sin as well. And he can We've all heard the proverb, let every man be your teacher. And so for the last few moments together this morning, I want to let the characters of this story teach us some lessons. First, we'll see a lesson from the scribes and the Pharisees. Religious tradition and piety are not necessarily bad things. It's a good thing to have traditions in your life as long as those traditions are for the purpose of bringing you into closer relationship with Christ. And so, so God has actually given us some traditions like baptism, the Lord's Supper, our, our regular meeting times where we, we come together, we do similar things. They, they become tradition, but if these traditions are pushing us into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, they're good things. Piety is, is not an evil thing as long as it's done for the right motive, right? That you're trying to live a holy, godly life. But religious tradition and piety can sometimes create in us 
a critical attitude, attitude toward what Jesus is doing in our lives and what Jesus is doing in others' lives. Right? The problem with it is oftentimes self-righteousness accompanies it. And so these Pharisees and these scribes are here. And what's interesting is they're sitting. And everybody else is, is squashed together, but the Bible says they're sitting because they're these important guys. They're the ones that everybody in, in Judaism looked to. They weren't the political leaders. They were just the celebrities, the, one that, the ones that everybody respected. They wanted to know what they said. They were the guardians of doctrine for Israel. And so as soon as they hear that Jesus is out there and that he's doing miracles and that people are following him and wanting to hear his teaching, they say, we need some guys out there. We need to get some spies in that crowd, and we need to hear what he's really doing. These guys are there with the wrong motive. They're there to be critical of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you should come to church and just lose your minds at the door and listen to everything that's being said. I don't think that at all, right? I think you should come to church, and you should compare Scripture with Scripture, and you should be ready to be critical in the right sense of what the preacher is saying. You want to put it through your minds and see if it lines up with what God's word says. But I don't want you to come to church with the attitude like, I'm just going to figure out everything wrong with what's being said. And that's what he was here for, right? This, this piety drove them away from Jesus. This attitude that we already know what's right, that we have nothing to learn, that we just got to figure out how to get him, that drove them away from Christ. And some people come to church and their sole goal is to figure out how to prove the preacher wrong. It's just not a good goal, right? Come, come with an open but a, a, a thinking mind, right? Be, be sensible toward what's being said. The irony here is that they tell us one of the greatest truths here in the passage, that only God can forgive sins, right? They see it, they just don't believe that Jesus is God. Here's, here's the thing that's true for, I think, humanity. As we look at the problems with humanity, one of the things that people can't escape, no matter how hard they try, is that feeling of guilt that they have within. This understanding that they've broken some kind of law, some kind of code, and, and even if we tell ourselves the truth is relative, even if we, we push it aside and we say, I don't need forgiveness, I don't need, I'm not going to stand before anyone, somehow deep within us. And and psychologists tell us that this is a problem with people that they see all the time, that that though they don't believe in God, they still fear, they still have this understanding that they've broken some kind of code, (coughs) that they're guilty. And here is the brilliant truth. God can forgive that sin. Whoever you are and whatever you believe, whatever you walked in here with, God can forgive your sin, and only God can. No counselor, no psychologist, you're not going to be able to talk yourself out of that, that feeling of guilt because it's there for a reason. It's there to, to help you see your need of forgiveness and to come to Christ with it. Only he can take care of it. And so, friend, please listen. God and only God can forgive that sin and wash the stain clean. Now let's see a lesson from the friends. I listened to a preacher this week, and he made a big deal about the fact that the Bible never calls these guys friends. And so he went on to say that they were probably strangers 
and that they just saw this guy, and they saw that he had a need, and they went and they picked him up, and they carried him to Jesus. And I'm, I'm picturing this paralytic guy, like, laying on the ground, and then having four strangers walk him, hey, we're going to take you to Jesus. And they lay him on this bed, and they, like, force him. And, and he is like, no, I, what? Like, it's just a weird, it's a weird thought, right? And so, I don't think this is a picture of four people who, who don't know somebody at all and, and they just decide that they're going to randomly bring this person to Jesus. I, I think these guys are friends, maybe family, but I think they love this man. They love him enough to say, here's a need in your life that we can't meet. And if we could, we would. If we could give you something of ourselves, we would do it. But we can't do anything for you here. We've heard about Jesus. We believe he can. Can we take you to him? I don't know if the paralyzed man is the one that, that said he wanted to go see Jesus. I don't, I don't know if these guys brought the idea. To, I don't know how that all went, went about. But I do know that these guys love him enough to carry him a long distance to get there. When they get there, they're not discouraged when they see the crowds. They're not, they're, they're not dissuaded from doing it because it's difficult. They just become creative. How can we find another way? Because our friend needs Jesus. And so they, they find a way to get him to Jesus. They find a way to get their friend to the one who can solve the problem that, that their friend has. Friends bring friends to Jesus. So we can learn a lesson from these guys. We can see their amazing faith that Jesus could heal their friend, their, their confidence in Jesus. Do we sometimes lack that confidence? Do we sometimes see friend, problems that our friends or our family members have and we think, yeah, there's no hope. There's no way. I get to see the problems of people often enough to know that, that I can say, like, without any hesitation, people are messed up. People are broken. Okay? We're a broken race. There are huge problems all the time that seem insurmountable. And if we're trying to tackle some of those on our own, we're going to fail miserably and put that person in a worse situation when they started. We need to have confidence that there is a God who can solve those problems. And then we need to bring our friends to Jesus. Lesson from our friends. Finally, or not finally, second, and ultimately, a lesson from Jesus. Now here's a lesson from Jesus. We see so much from Christ in the story. We see the way that he serves people and gives of himself consistently. It didn't matter that he had arrived in this home with the hope of having a nice meal and maybe some sleep and, and some rest after this long preaching journey he'd been on. As soon as he gets in the house, there's crowds of people. What does he do? He doesn't kick him out. He teaches. He preaches. He heals. He's loving these people. He's willing to serve. We see that so clearly. We see his tenderness and compassion that as the roof is breaking up above him and stuff is falling on his head, he's like, going, what are you guys doing? He sees their faith. And he, he's, it's almost like Jesus is saying, this is what faith looks like, people. This is, this is it. And so he's so kind and tender <coughs> toward this man because of his faith. And then we see that 
he's willing to extend grace so freely. He doesn't wait until this guy says all the right words. He doesn't wait until he goes through the prayer perfectly and he doesn't say, do you really mean it? Are you sure? This, this man comes to him with this faith and I believe he comes with this faith to be healed and to be forgiven. And Jesus immediately before the words are out of his mouth says, your sins are forgiven. He, he, he desires to show grace to people. Right? He's not a, a God who's got this like little table of grace and he's like sparingly passing it out. He's, he's waiting to show himself strong on your behalf. He's waiting to show his love to you. He wants you to open yourself up to it. And that's exactly what this guy does. And immediately Jesus shows his love. Jesus, at the cost of his life, offers forgiveness to you. And I think the greatest lesson that we learn from Jesus here is that your greatest need is forgiveness. It's not to have your problems fixed. Your problems are symptoms of a larger problem. Your greatest problem, your greatest need, the greatest need of every human being no matter what Google says, is that they need to be forgiven. They need their sins washed away. Every other problem that you're dealing with in your life now is temporal. It all comes to an end, right? It doesn't matter how bad it is. It doesn't matter what the sickness is. It doesn't matter how much pain there is. All of that comes to an end. But if there's no forgiveness then Jesus allowed this man to walk for 30 years and then walk straight into hell. That's that's a lot worse. Greatest need of every person in this room is forgiveness. Jesus shows us that very clearly. Finally, we see a lesson from the paralytic. And we could look back at the story. We could again see his faith, his understanding that Jesus was the one who could heal and forgive. And that's certainly a lesson from him. But I wonder what it was like when the paralyzed man took up his bed, walked back home, and walked through his, the front doors. I wonder what the family members that didn't know all that had transpired thought. They look this guy up and down, and they think, who's this stranger in our home? And they'd see him, they'd see his face, and they'd be just, they'd be just in awe, in shock that, that their dad, maybe, or, or their brother or or their uncle or whoever it is that he's here and he can walk he's carrying a bed right this is amazing how did this happen and i imagine them sitting them these people down him saying can i tell you something that's not the greatest thing that happened to me today receiving the ability to walk after i hadn't been able to for so long it's not the greatest thing the greatest thing that happened to me today is that my sins were forgiven. Is that Jesus took away my sin. And can I tell you something? If we could have him come and meet with us today, there's absolutely no doubt that would be his message. Your greatest need, just like my greatest need, as I, as I laid on that bed and couldn't do anything for myself, was still to be forgiven. And whatever you think your problem is right now, your need is forgiveness. And there's nothing that will last for eternity like that. Nothing. And so this paralytic teaches us what we really need to have done. We need to come to Christ for forgiveness. And we need to stop worrying so much about every little problem we face. 
I don't know how you need to be encouraged this morning. I don't know if you need to learn from the bad example of the scribes and Pharisees. Say, I'm, I'm coming to church. I'm coming to the word of God with a critical spirit, and I shouldn't do that. I don't know if you need to be encouraged uh, to see the truth that they proclaimed, that only God forgives sin. Maybe you need to be encouraged to bring your friends to Jesus, to stop trying to fix them on your own and just bring them to Christ. Maybe you need to see that your greatest need is forgiveness. And today you need to receive forgiveness like the paralytic. You need to come to Christ with faith and repentance. You need to ask him to forgive you and to heal you. Jesus only has the power to do this. Whatever your need is, Let's not, let's not get together and do church and, and, and worship together and then do nothing about what God teaches us. I've got, I've got nothing in myself good to say. I really don't. But if this is the story that the Bible teaches us this morning, and, and the Holy Spirit has said to you, yeah, that, that point, that thing, that's you, I encourage you, make a decision. Do something about it act on what the Spirit of God is doing in our hearts and minds.